You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Hey, everybody, this is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns Podcast. This week, I have Andres Duani. He's a, an American architect and urban planner, a founder, one of the founders of the Congress for the New Urbanism. Uh, you probably have seen his work that he's done with his firm, DPZ. He's co-authored five books, including Suburban Nation, The Rise of Sprawl, and The Decline of the American Dream. He's one of my personal heroes and a guy I've, I've looked up to and admired for a long time. It's amazing to have him on the podcast. Andres Duani, welcome to the Strong Towns podcast. Thank you. Thanks for including me. I think our audience, to a degree, is familiar with the new urbanism, but a, a lot of them are, are not new urbanists. A lot of them don't come from that vein. Could you, could you take us back to the early 1990s and, and give us a sense of what you and, and others were trying to accomplish with the founding of the new urbanism? Well, it's interesting that you say 1990 because the new urbanism is so old now that it actually has history and it has had, it's gone through different phases, you know, different, different reasons for being. At the beginning, it was very personal. We wanted to live in places that we had remembered from our youth that were walkable and diverse, you know, where actually we could get to things and the public realm, the streets and so forth were friendly and sociable. And so we just wanted to make places like that. And so did some of our clients. And so did some of our clients' buyers. Originally, it was a personal kind of autobiographical, I want to live in a place like this. And it turns out a lot of people felt the same way, which is one of the reasons that our projects like Seaside became so expensive. Then it was driven by something else, which is Indianism uh, arose. And those of you who are younger don't, can't even conceive of a place where Indies didn't exist, but they virtually didn't exist before the 90s. And that's because Serbia had failed there was still a promise that you could go to suburbia and have a uh, live in nature and drive around and so forth. And when that started crashing, it turns out that many potential clients uh, needed us to get permits because we could actually explain, we're not part of the problem, we're part of the solution. And I think the new urbanism was driven, I think, for political reasons by, uh, I, I want to thank Mindy's for this, by the Mindy movement, who very correctly didn't want any more suburbia. And the last uh, phase, which is so interesting, is that now we're gradually folding into the environmental movement at the level of climate change because it turns out that driving around for your ordinary daily needs and having everything shipped in and uh, busting kids to school and all that stuff, you know, the, the 14 car trips a day that suburbia generates, is actually a huge part of the damage that's going on to the atmosphere. So now we are being driven. Uh, you know, and Calthorpe has taken the lead on it. Peter Calthorpe, another founder, we're now being driven by climate change. So that is the reason, and I think they all overlap. One didn't replace the other, but I think that's kind of the history of, of why it is. I want to talk a little bit about that evolution because, I mean, I I've been involved since the early two thousands, and just in in my period of time, I've seen things, and and largely there was a a mental shift that happened inside the new urbanism and outside in 2008, 2010 with the the housing reset. It seems like in my brief period of time that the new urbanism has evolved from a, I don't say this in a disparaging way at all, but a, a better version of suburbia to now really kind of tackling the issues of, of urban places. Can you speak a little bit to that and, and correct me where I'm wrong? One of the things that is, I think important to realize is that while we did pioneer the counter project for suburban sprawl, and uniquely, I, I think the new urbanists were the only people engaged out there, you know, fighting the developers, fighting the then ULI, fighting the then APA and so forth, then normal sprawl, rewriting the code and so forth. We have always from the beginning been, been involved with uh, downtowns. I mean, uh, my firm has done probably a dozen major plans and codes for downtown. The thing about the inner city work is that uh, many, many people were on the case of that, of, of inner city work and things like this onward. And so I think one can claim less as new urbanists 
in that campaign for the inner city. But I'll tell you what is important, the retrofit of suburban sprawl, you know, the repairing suburbia, what to do with the dying malls, what to do with the office parks nobody else wants, what to do with the subdivisions that are losing value. We're pioneering that now. And that really is, I think, the work of the coming generation. What do we do with the existing sprawl that is losing value? I'd like to emphasize, put an emphasis on that, that that we uniquely contribute to. And while we in fact do uh, inner city work, our firm does tons of it. It's not unique. And I think that, that, that credit should be spread widely. How has that focus shifted, though? I mean, it, I know you guys have been involved and I've seen others in the new urbanism that has been involved. But with the, I guess, the suburban retrofit and the whole shift to, it feels like, and I'm kind of building up to Detroit too, it it kind of feels like the essence of what's going on in Detroit and a few years ago when we were in Buffalo and the neighborhoods that we were in in Dallas last year, that this is really where the energy and the vitality is now within this movement and, and also within the country. Is that is that kind of a well, fair? yes. Uh, yes, but again, I want to say that the energy is coming from the millennials. You know, two people are driving it. The millennials love city living, uh, suburban sprawl where they grew up, holds no magic for them. And the seniors who, in fact, uh, as they get older, they can't drive, actually need the walkable places. So I would say that there's a huge, and we all know this, there's a huge demographic energy that is going towards the inner city. But I'd like to point something else out. There's a sub-movement, which is also driven by the young in the Congress, which is called lean urbanism. And lean urbanism is the way that you actually undertake to redo, to revitalize places like Detroit and Buffalo and actually many American small towns. And the reason it's important is that the large developers cannot get interested in small-scale work. And at the same time, you know, they, they just can't. They can't do it financially to renovate buildings, to make the, the localized decisions that sew that together an urban fabric. But this lean movement is a, a, a technology to, to enable very many small builders, very many small developers, very many startup businesses to be active in these places. And so Detroit, which is so empty and has lost such value, is actually an example of a place where that is happening. And we're there, not we're there. My opinion is we're there to learn about what it is that's happening there, what the young people are doing in Detroit that is so exciting, and how Detroit, by actually pulling back its regulatory environment, because, you know, Detroit can not only not afford cops, it can't afford regulators. So it's unable to stop the energy of the young people, the energy of the small developers. You know, so they can't be asking for follow all the rules, gold plate the building, get all the permits. And they're allowing this incredible vitality to take place simply by not stopping it. I think that's the great lesson of Detroit. And, of course, the new urbanists are there with lean urbanism, which is the new technique, which I believe, actually, as we turn out to be quite impoverished in the 21st century, we're no longer a wealthy nation, I think it's going to become the central trust of new urbanism. I want to talk a little bit about lean urbanism and I want to set it up this way because your, your bio and when people Google Andres Duani, the, the first thing they're going to see is Seaside and Kentlands and they're going to see some of the kind of the premier new urbanist developments around the country. Intellectually, I've watched you embrace the, the lean urbanism, even in a way where I, I think some of your and you could tell me if this is unfair, but I, I think some of your contemporaries uh, have kind of said, you know, wh why? Wh why is this great architect, you know, messing around with these small little things? Can you talk a little bit about intellectually why you kind of moved in that direction and, and what you think the implications are? Well, uh, there's a couple of reasons they're both personal, okay? But I remember when I was 30 years old and nobody would stop me from doing anything. It was the regulatory environment in my lifetime meant nothing to impossible. For example, when we, at 27, I was designing high rises in Miami that got built. At, at 30, we designed Seaside at age 30. And we couldn't have done it if anybody resisted it. Because we didn't have the, we didn't have the explanations. We didn't have the tools to explain why we were doing something different. But in the America of that time, they let you be. 
Okay, the Indians were crushed by bureaucracy and crushed by rules. The codes were very thin. The youth had an incredible ability to act. And now, 35 years later, I look at the codes and their volumes, which used to be a half-inch code, is now a six-volume set. And I can see people, in fact, don't have the opportunity that we did. But, and they actually don't know how to get out of the morass. But we do. The old folk of the new urbanism actually grew up with this morass of regulation, mm-hmm. and we are the only ones who know how to clear it out. So I think that what we do to the people, make it the Congress attractive to the young people, is to say, we, we know, who grew up with the bureaucracy, in some ways, we were complicit with the growth of bureaucracy, can take a win for you, so that we can ensure a situation such as, such as when we were young, when we were 30, and we could get big things done. And I think so, you know, for me, it's an anger at what has happened, you know, I've been tricked into, I'm complicit in the growth of bureaucracy, and also, I want to be a value to the young people. I don't want to be some old husk that you know, has nothing to offer us the full story, you know, and frankly, um, I, I know how to maneuver through the terrible bureaucracy, and I know how to clear it out, and that's what lunar urbanism is, and most of us do know how to do that. Most of the guys at the urbanism, they are incredibly energetic, and we know how to clear it out. Just fix it a bureaucracy, get rid of it, and allow the young to act. We call these pink zones. Uh, it's a new zoning category in which the red tape has been negotiated down. And that's what it's called a pink stone. And that's going to be a big thing, I think, in Detroit and later. You look at millennials today. It's easy to paint with a broad brush, but but I, I see many of them being very progressive in the way they look at what government can do. Yet I step back and look at, in, in a lot of the ways that you are describing here, you know, a lot of the governmental systems that we have as being an, an impediment to doing some really important things. What is the balance there? I mean, you, you talk about climate change and the need to have a, a, a little bit of Robert Moses in us. How do we, in this kind of strange political time, you know, find a way to reconcile the fact that government needs to do more, but also in many ways do less? You know, the purpose are actually, um, at some level, not only doers, but they're intellectuals. They have terrific intellectuals that actually know history and do research. You know, it's it's an extraordinary combination to actually get people who are just straight from the library, having uh, useful discussions with people who are straight from the, you know, who just took off their tool belts. You know, and that's what you'll see. You're going to see uh, union electricians and professors talking to each other at the same level at the CNU. So one of the things we've discovered through research is that there's a theory called subsidiarity. And subsidiarity is a theory of government that says the decisions should be actually downstreamed to the smallest and most local group that can competently make it. So one of the things we do is not, when we get together, for example, in a charrette, uh, in a public process, we don't make the decisions. We decide who makes the decision. The uh, uh, stated purpose of seeing how locally the decision can be made. For example, if the decision can be made by a street or by a block, by all means, it should be made at that level and not at the level of the city as a whole. And if a decision can be made at the level of the neighborhood, then it should be made at the level of the state. Okay, on the other hand, there are things like highways, obviously, and uh, affordable housing that would never get voted at the level of the neighborhood and it should be done at the level of the state or the nation. And so we spend a lot of time actually deciding who decides. And so, yes, the answer is it isn't just Jane Jacobs you know, doing the little the little stuff, you know, with the little tailor who takes care of the kid when he comes home from school, when the bus drops him off or anything like that. Yes, of course we need that. But we also need somebody to build a bridge, you know, across the river. We also need somebody, for example, to organize, you know, all these small farmers that are now emerging, the agricultural, the agrarian, urbanists, and so forth. Well, somebody needs to organize them at the city level. You know, it can't just be, I'm dealing with, uh, you know, with my local grocer. And so, yes, one of the things we do is to deal with all levels. And the new urbanism is very much against Moses, you know, because he's very, very uh, top-down. And my contention, we need some top-down as well as bottom-up, that we have perhaps emphasized bottom-up as the solution to everything, and it isn't. When I hear you talk about it, and the subsidiary thing, I've, I've heard you describe it before in a way that makes a lot of sense to me. 
it, it seems like a lot of our energy from a government level is concentrated higher up. Let me give a concrete example of that. At, at the local level, uh, most cities are not able to set their own tax policy. That's set for them by the state. But yet, you know, we have cities, you know, where you live is a very different city than where I live. Uh, you know, we have cities here in Minnesota that are logging communities and mining communities and ag and metropolitan areas, but they all have the same exact tax structure. I mean, they all have the same. It's as if each business has to charge the same amount for vastly different services. It seems like there's a little bit of fear of giving local governments more control because they might screw it up somehow. How do we get over that? Well, I don't think, again, the answer is up to the already. For example, I would say, and I haven't thought about this a lot, I'm, I'm just very vague, that, for example, there are local taxes, you know, that are, let's say are for schools, and then there are federal taxes that take care of the bigger things. So we have the basic structure. What we need to do is discuss and actually make a proposition as to what, what level of tax should be decided locally and which level of tax should be decided at the level of the city and which level of tax at the level of the state and in the country. You know, for example, we can say 55% of our taxes can go to the Fed. And then the next 15%, let's say, go to the state. And then the last 25% goes to the city. And we want 5% of our taxes to go to our, literally to our local association, you know, in an orderly way. And then they can decide what to do with it. But you cannot have somebody decide, a city to decide not extend, let's say, a highway, you know, with three cities, to, or let's say a transit line. Very typical. Somebody wants a transit line, three cities, and the fourth city says, I don't want to stop. You know, you can't have that either. I actually, once this tool is explained, it actually gets rid of an awful lot of confusion and dysfunction. I think it's one of the great taxonomic tools of government. Is at what level should this decision be made? And it just clarifies things wonderfully. Anyway, that is, I'm kind of a fan of subsidiarity. In my own office, I, I actually try to, to actually enable decisions as low as possible. Grandmother used to say, in Cuban, he said, let the person under the coconut tree decide which coconut to take down. You know, don't tell me about that. You know, and, and that was a form of subsidiarity. You mentioned NIMBYs earlier, and a lot of the frustration that you've had is that you you didn't face NIMBYs back when you started, and, and now today they're kind of ubiquitous. Can you talk a little bit about why being a NIMBY today is often a rational thing? Oh, yes. No, that's what I would say. Is you, have to, you have to understand when a NIMBY says no growth, don't give me your project, they're actually being rational. Because, in fact, most projects are, in fact, decreased to the quality of life. Most of their projects just eat up uh, nature and create more traffic. So they, the first thing to do is to respect the community and to understand, A, that they're behaving rationally, and B, that they're on your side, so long as they permit you to explain what the problem is and how you're not part of the problem. You know, once that's done, then you can talk, and they're very powerful forces. like environmentalists. Environmentalists are a very powerful driving force, but not if they're anti-human. Even environmentalists think that a human is nothing but a, a carbon emitter and a problem to nature, then there's nothing to talk about. But if an environmentalist understands that the city, making a dense city, is the greatest solution that you can have for the encroachment of humans on nature, right? Because in a dense city, people walk, they take transit. They insulate each other in their apartment. You know, that there's nothing more insulated than an apartment above and beside you. You know, as long as the environmentalists understand that density is a good thing, even if it, you might have to every once in a while put a pipe in a stream, or a stream in a pipe, I mean, you might just put the grid connected. If they understand that, then environmentalists are great friends. But unfortunately, most American environmentalists only know the nature part of the equation. So, uh, you know, humans are outside of nature. And humans are a problem. So too often they're nimby. So, uh, and they're not being rational, you know. But one of the things that CNU has done with the transect, which is another great tool of digital urbanism, is that it actually involves, involves a continuum between the urban core and the wilderness. And each of them rates differently. Like, for example, wilderness rates very, very highly. 
and so does Manhattan. Manhattan rates very, very high on an environmental basis. And then suburbia, which actually is greener, you know, superficially greener with all its lawns and, you know, woodlands and, and, and swales and ponds and so forth. Suburbia, with all the driving, it actually shouldn't be. It shouldn't rate highly environmentally. It has no diversity. It has no socioeconomic diversity. It has no natural diversity. And yet environmentalists are always acting for more green. They want to push up suburbia, which just makes it harder to, for it to work. It makes it a sense. And so, yes, there's a long, uh, ongoing dialogue with the environmentalists to have them include humans in their calculation. When I think of suburbia and I look at the sprawl retrofit work, I, I can't help but I'm putting together here in my mind the subsidiarity issue with the, the NIMBY issue. If you're going to live in the suburbs today, you've got a really high capital burn rate. In order to maintain all of that stuff as an individual, as a neighborhood, as a city, it's a pretty resource-intensive kind of existence. As those resources go away, it feels like the future of the suburbs is largely in question. You read Lee Gallagher's book from a couple of years ago. You and I were both quoted in it extensively. I'm wondering if the NIMBY equation starts to change as the kind of desperation level goes up, or if suburbs just in insist on being essentially, you know, I I'm going to take whatever power and influence I have to try to prop up what I've got and, and, and not adapt. What, what do you think the future of those places well, are? Okay. Uh, here's another new, uh, just a little more bragging about the new urbanism. I think that there's a lot of sophistication in the, I think the discernment, the ability to analyze of the new urbanism. When you say suburbia, people think of one big thing, you know, like shopping centers, office parks, houses. But actually, Brooklyn in a decade has a different kind of suburbia. For example, the 1920s suburbia, which were curved, actually are walkable to transit. You know, they can be retrofitted to transit, even though they're primarily houses. You know, places like Shaker Heights and places like, say, Santa Barbara, you know, Lake Forest, uh, Forest Hills. These are places that actually, they're suburbia, but they're of a different vintage. And then there's the vintage of the 50s, which is Levittown, uh, which actually has some hope uh, for retrofit. And then there's this, the, the 70 suburbs, and then the 90 suburbs, and then the year 2000 suburbs. And not only are they, are they different in terms of the connectivity and the distance to their potential, I would say, violent standards, but actually some of them are so locked in with association documents, rigid association documents, that it's hopeless to change them. It's just there's no way you're going to get the 80% votes until they're absolutely cataclysmic, until they actually implode. And once they're abandoned, then you can do something. But, but there's a lot of early models of it that really are promising. So I would say that we shouldn't have a single response to the suburbs being abandoned. We, we need to actually have names. We, we have names. We, we, we actually have analyzed what they are, what their physical and uh, governmental characteristics are, and what their prospects are. I think that's understood. But I'll tell you, the ones from the 60s and 70s, they're pretty hope which are actually the the seedier ones at the moment, they have the most hope. Uh, they can become quite nice towns. And actually, Dalina Tatieva's book has a lot of illustrations about what can be done with a ranch house of 1960s vintage. It's really quite good. It's brilliant. I totally agree. There's a lot of hand-wringing about gentrification. And I want to talk to you about the other end of the spectrum, the suburbs that we're kind of walking away from. And, and to me, Detroit is... Kind of a case study in this in many ways. You know, we, when we abandoned people in inner cities, when we walked away from cities in the fifties and sixties, the people we left behind, it, there was a lot of despair, but we, we left them behind in coherent neighborhoods, you know, places where you could take a bus somewhere or, you know, walk to a store or what have you. When we leave the poor people behind in, disconnected suburbia. We're leaving them behind in an environment that is really despotic in many ways. What do you think the balance is between the, the lament over gentrification and the, this kind of thing we don't talk about, which is suburban poverty and the implications of that as that kind of becomes more of a, a omnipresent phenomena? 
you were kind of, you know, you're pretty young, uh, not super, super young, but pretty young. One of the things that I can contribute is remembering uh, when gentrification was categorically a great thing. I mean, you would just come in and say, let me show you how to gentrify. Now, I remember pretty recently when that term was absolutely positive in its implications. And I watched it turn around pretty recently where it's nothing but a huge problem. You know what I mean? It's, uh, so let's talk about that. It's a very young discourse, the discourse of gentrification. Uh, and we're beginning to understand it. But I do know a couple of things. It is a pioneering gentrification, which is absolutely necessary. The people who come in first, because actually the places are dead and the places are not cool and the places actually need their tax base. And gentrification brings a tax base. Uh, the people who are in abandoned places, these places aren't in taxes. But then something happens in a second and third generation where the first generation is displaced. You know, the similar of gentrifiers, as well as the original residents, actually, because the first generation loves the original residents. What they do is they occupy the spaces in between. And then everybody gets displaced, at which point we have to decide. And, you know, so in, in, like, for example, in Brooklyn, like the people who are complaining that gentrifying are the new young people who now want to come in. But my, my feeling is, hey, somebody else did the job. Somebody else pioneered. Why don't you go to Buffalo? Why don't you go to Detroit? You know, instead of inheriting the empty the work of others, do the work yourself. And I do think that actually, if I were to just make a very clear statement now, I think if Brooklyn is over-gentrified, those people should go to Detroit and should go to Buffalo and should go to Troy and should go to the great small towns of America and get to work on them. So my feeling is that there's so much utilized urbanism in America that people should, like proper Americans, move on. You know, the whole history of the United States is moving on and creating wealth and creating places. I mean, people left the Eastern Seaboard, crossed the Appalachians, created Chicago out of nothing, created San Francisco out of nothing, created L.A. out of nothing. Is it really too difficult to get people to go to Detroit, you know, with a street turn place, the pipe turn place? You know what I'm saying? It's not too difficult. They're all sticking with particles to the existing cool places. I don't have sympathy for that. I think they should go off and pioneer. By the way, this is incredibly unpopular to say this, but I think it needs to be said. I want to ask you about that because you you have you have surrounded yourself with I think some of the brightest people I've ever met, particularly when you get to the millennials. And it, it's funny because I've I've seen you tease them and and joke with them and, and stuff, but I I see a lot of healthy respect there as well. This is a generation, and again, I, I don't want to paint with a, a broad brush, but I can count, you know, my generation as well. I'm, I just turned 43. Uh, so I'm, you know, I'm a little bit older than your millennials, but the idea of essentially becoming pioneers, uh, if I would have told that to my wife, you know, 20 years ago when we were just getting married and, and, and stuff, she used to that. That's crazy. Like I, you know, I don't want to do that. I went to college and we've got student loans to pay back and, uh, you know, let's get to work. Um, here's what I'm asking. I'm going to say this in a coarse way, but I, I, I know you'll handle it yeah. better oh, than good. I'm going to then say you're it. you're a new urbanist. <laughs> don't have anything. Yeah, no, we, you know, we're pretty tough guys. You've seen how we, how we treat each other. We treat each other absolutely straightforward. Oh, I, I know. <laughs> yeah, I, I, yeah, I, one of the things that drew me to it. In a way, we have become, in our affluence, a little bit soft. Is that just going to change out of necessity? Or is that something we can kickstart and, and move along? This is so topical now. Just two days ago, this week's New Yorker uh, has an article uh, on Oberlin College. It tries to be very sympathetic about the students that are unhappy there. But what comes across, and it just couldn't be avoided, is how Basically, really, and I'm going to say it, what whiners they are. You know, they're just weak and they're whiners and they want everything protected and, you know, they're unhappy regardless. And then there was an editorial by uh, Brooks. Uh, his name's David Brooks, right? From David the New York Brooks, Times. Yep. Right. Yeah, that was yesterday. And he said, that's because these kids are idealistic and nobody gives them a mission. You know, a mission, something difficult to do. But we basically say you have rights, you have the right to save spaces, you have, 
you know, you a lot of grievance. You know, you've been, you've been. Uh, it's not only, by the way, ethnic grievance. It's, you know, it's not even sexual. I mean, the whole generation is aggrieved because of the of the bad economy that we have and the terrible debts that they have that we have actually bequeathed to them. But we also haven't provided them with a sense of great mission. And David Brooks talks about that, and I think that the mission is what they're missing, what they're lacking. Okay, now let's talk about a mission. They really, really want to do something about climate change, okay? That there's no greater mission than saving the world. And this is their mission. The 20-year-olds are the ones who are going to do it. It's a very long-range thing. The 20-year-olds are going to do it. But what do you have set up? It's taking place at the level of the United Nations. It's taking place at the level of what Obama said which means that all they can do is support or protest. They can't actually do anything themselves. Now, if we actually set this up differently into something more local, if we can say, let's adapt our communities locally, then every individual can actually participate in the mission. You know, I can actually, the way I work, the way I get to work, the way I, I get my food, the choices that I make, you know, once it's local, then the mission is in their hands, and it's much more inspiring than just watching and protesting whether the American president makes the right decision at the level of the United Nations. So one of the things that I'm actually pushing as well, very, very strongly, is the feeling that adaptation, adapting to climate change, allows people to act locally, and that makes all the difference in terms of the transformation for the millennials. Anyway, that's one of the things I'm most excited about now. Because right now, you know, most of us are changing all diplomats, you know. But when is the next Paris meeting? What does the United Nations think? Oh, my God, that has nothing to do with me. So people back off, and then they, you know, they, they, they think too small, I think. I think. I think to think in the medium term and to think in the medium scale is very empowering. You know, when you think about the world as a whole and you think about the year 2100, that's actually disempowering. And so I'd like to sort of bring the scale down to some place where you can actually act. This feels like this conversation's come full circle in, in the sense that we started out talking about bureaucracies and, you know, NIMBYs and, and local bureaucracies. And, and now we're talking about ways people can act in their own places. I, I, I'm reminded and inspired a little bit by Mike Lydon's work. How much of this is that people need to just go out and hack their own city and like take charge of their own places? How how much do we need to just license people to, you know, love their block again? I think that's precisely the first step for the very young. You know, the thing is tactical urbanism, which is spectacular uh, in its intelligence and its empowerment, actually needs to scale up and actually be able to do larger and more permanent projects. You know, the uh, the tactical urbanists are doing wonderful demonstration projects that you know may or may not become become permanent. But I when I see them when I think Mike Lydon, I, I see his capacity, you know, his capacity literally in every way. He worked at the, he worked uh, at, at DPZ for a couple of years and he were co authors of the book. So I know what he's capable of. And I think that actually at his age or even younger, I was designing Seaside. One of the things actually by watching Mike Lydon generation and say, hey, you guys used to be criminals in World War II at your age. You know, you used to, I mean, you guys had beat Germany at age, at age 32. You know, why can't we let you have a much greater run of things? And the whole idea of lean urbanism is that people in their early 30s are quite capable of doing big things. So yes, tax urbanism is a great breakthrough, but now we need to have them occupy more permanent positions and bigger projects and more responsibility. I remember once you, you said how uh, we cheer uh, when we are able to put up a bench that, you know, in, in any European city would be an afterthought, but we, you know, make a big deal out of it. Is that how far we've gone in that direction? Well, I'll tell you one of the things. I went to a United Nations conference uh, in Stockholm, and it was person after person who would actually kind of made a little nice square. You know, they'd make a square. Uh, useful good square uh, for some poor people. And then I say, how long did that take? They say seven years. You know, seven years. And you know, you know how many people are born every day? 135,000. First of all, 
so this this sense of 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 accomplishment that takes too long and is too small is completely nostalgic and archaic. Everything that we do has to be done quickly and has to be done in large numbers. Because if not, it's not it's irrelevant. I mean, that number of 135,000, and I think it's actually even more. It might be 135,000 by noon. You know what I'm saying? It's, it's horrifying. And yet we're having people that are actually installing benches and might actually take six months to get there. It's ridiculous. We've got to, we've got to break up that, that the timelines are, are, are a joke. And that's one of the things lean urbanism wants to do. And I think tactical urbanism and being, being on the edge of actually doing projects that are not condoned by the authorities, that quasi-radical illegality is incredibly healthy. And I do hope they don't become too bored about it, you know. I think Americans... Please push back on this if, if I'm, if I'm speaking out of turn, but you know, cause you, you live in a, a different part of the country than I do. I, I think here in Minnesota, throughout the Midwest, what have you, we, we tend to look at Cuba historically as this top down dictatorship, omnipresent force uh, of government. Yet, you know, you live there. I want you to talk a little bit about your experience in Cuba and your experience in Spain and, and some of the other parts of the world where we, maybe envision their government to be a little bit more dictatorial. How is it different living at the block level in a place like that? In other words, when we talk about lean urbanism, we talk about tactical urbanism, we talk about doing things that maybe are not outside of what's sanctioned. How much room do you have in a society like that to, to do those things? And, and what's the impact of that? It's a study everything. And I think, uh, for example, and I think we need to study anything with that idea, you know, like what works and what doesn't. For example, the immigrants in Miami are incredibly energetic, and they're completely incapable of following rules because the rules are too complicated, and yet they get things done, you know. There are whole areas in Miami that actually are not even inspected. The inspectors say, there's going to be too much heartache, let them do it, they're, not, they're, they're doing fine. <laughs> uh, the other thing that we noticed, I mean, you know, so that's a Miami example. I'm a great fan of immigrants, you know, because they're the best of the best. I mean, they're the, you know, we're not, we don't coddle people. They have to fight their way into this country, you know? So we get the best of the best in these countries. And so this thing about lean urbanism is directed not only to millennials, to young people with energy willing to take risks, but actually to the intrinsic risk takers, which immigrants are. So actually lean urbanism is addressed specifically to make things uh, possible, small things possible for immigrants and young people. So that's one thing. Now, uh, I happen to have a house in France. I think Americans misunderstand France terribly. We think it's a, it's a dysfunctional place that's nothing but debt, and, you know, they have socialized medicine, and God knows, you know, hardly work and so forth. And I'll tell you, we completely misunderstand their system. Socialism tends to work. And the reason that it's almost incredible to believe because of the reputation is that their socialism works because they have no bureaucracy and they have no lawyers to speak of. And this is something I had no idea that that's what it was. I just thought it was France was all about bureaucracy and all socialized medicine. Socialized medicine in France works like a dream. It's inexpensive. It's effective. And the reason is, I don't mean bureaucracy. I mean, the, 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 the socialism in France works because they, have, they actually fight bureaucracy all the time. It's not a bureaucratized socialism, you know? And so it's very, very efficient. The problem we have with our, with our socialized medicine here is that it's nothing but bureaucracy. And that's what makes it expensive and dysfunctional. There are lessons everywhere, like the lessons of the immigrants, the lessons of France. I think we're going to have shantytowns, you know? Uh, just areas where people are going to build by themselves and they're going to lose value. A kind of Kunstler vision, you know, of a world made by hand. And we need to understand what, was, what communities that were like. And by the way, there's a lot to be learned by the failure of the communes of the 1960s. You know, I'm, I'm, also, I'm also very interested in that. You know, these organizations by idealistic people set up to do everything right, and yet they all close down. And I think we need to study failure as well as success. You know, ruthlessly, whatever works, whatever works, we need to study it. Whatever doesn't work, we need to study it. 
you know, without ideology. And the communes are interesting. The 60s, the 60s, very interesting. I remember them. And there's a lot, there's a lot to them. And I think actually they could make a great deal of sense now with the older population. You know, I think that's going to be the best way for many of them to live and to get out of people's hair. You know, get out of the cities, get out of the, uh, your big mansions and, and, and socialize in communes. You'll love it. And they work. <laughs> so yeah. they can, they can work. I want to close with Detroit. I, I know we could probably talk about this for two hours, but in a nutshell, what, what is your story of, of Detroit? And why is this the right place for, for CNU to be right now? In some ways, because the disaster of Detroit is something that's going to happen with a lot of, in a lot of places. Most American cities are broke, okay? And most American cities have an extremely decayed infrastructure. And while Detroit is an extreme version, that's what you want to study. You know, how did this happen so that we can actually learn about it? You know, what kind of government actually leads to such tremendous debt? You know, uh, and the fact that people can flee, they can leave. And Detroit's very, very affluent. Uh, the fact that people can do that, you can't keep them ill-governed and broke, is part of the equation. I mean, we're not Stalin here. We should tell people where to live. So Detroit is to be studied for failure. But, and it has been studied for failure for 25 years. But I think we're going there to study Detroit for its success. Because what happened was, the people with tremendous energy, the people for whom Brooklyn was not enough, for whom Brooklyn didn't Brooklyn, they discovered could get things done in Detroit. And I once uh, did a tour of Detroit, but it was one of the most inspiring things I ever, ever experienced, which is the ocean of disaster, which is Detroit. There was an archipelago of excellence in energy. And I saw people opening businesses and renovating buildings and, and starting restaurants and doing all of these things, whole streets being redone. And by the way, people even, even taking care of their own security because nobody stopped them. And that's where I had the great aha moment, you know? People with energy, you know, uh, we're still Americans. People with energy, if we don't crush it with bureaucracy and you don't crush us with process and regulation and with lawyers and fear, we have incredible capacity. And that's the lesson of Detroit. And I, as I said, I'm there not only, uh, and I think CNU is there, not to teach at all. It's there to learn, and actually by this time, to actually celebrate them and say, this, what a wonderful job you're doing. And I think that's different from most people that have gone to Detroit in the past. They were all, it, it, it was just like ruined pornography. They wanted to be ruined. It was thrilling to see the ruins. We're going there to learn from the success of Detroit. I wish we had done it two years ago, actually. Three years ago. I mean, back at the Palm Beach CNU, I was already agitating. I said, we've got to be in Detroit, not in Palm Beach. Are we crazy? What are we doing in Palm Beach? Palm Beach is, 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 is a, a 20th century model. Detroit is a 21st century model. And it took this many years to get us there. I realize as we talk, I just how much I've learned from you. And I, I wonder if you may, I said that was the last question. I'm going to ask you one more real quick. And this is a, a nostalgic one, maybe. But what, what is it like to step back and, and hear people echoing your words, you know, decades, decades later? I hear a lot of what you say being spoken now, uh, more broadly. Is, is, is that the legacy of the new urbanism? Is that, is that what you set out to try to accomplish with, uh, with this and the other founders? Well, here's a, actually, I, I think it's, it's, there's no reason not to, not to delve into some depth. Uh, the new urbanism is always, is always presented so superficially. Anything we can do to make it, uh, to make it a, uh, to show its depth is, is worthwhile. So bear with me. One of the things that happened with with the founders is that we all had we're all good speakers. Calthorpe or Solomon or Polidoides. We we always had a megaphone. You know, there was a time when I would deliver 40, 40, 40 speeches a year. You know, so it wasn't a matter of of teaching. We always had capability. What we wanted to do was learn from each other. So we formed a very small group of five people, and then the five people invited other people, and other people, and the first, the first congresses were 200 people. 
and they were by invitation, and they were so we could learn from each other. It wasn't just to teach. We were all able to do that already. We wanted to learn from each other. And there's a core to the new urbanism, which is about learning from each other. Okay? And, uh, but we've also inevitably, as we've grown bigger, become a teaching institution. And there's a lot of tension between people like myself who really want to keep it elite and for for it to be the the forge of ideas. You know, the great think tank of urbanism. And then there's another counterforce that says we need somebody to spread it. So what you're identifying is the fact that we did this this elite core of several hundred people, which is all the thinking taking place. By the way, you're, you're absolutely part of it, you know. Chuck, you're absolutely part of it now. There, there, there are quite a lot of people in their 30s and 40s that are part of that, of that, of the core that, that, that is absolutely in the actual. And what happens is that it takes a lot of energy to spread the idea. You know, you have to have a huge organization, like Rails to Trails, or the great sort of environmental meetings of 10,000 people and so forth. And that dilutes, that dilutes the intellectual core. So the way that urbanism has come out, and I'm very pleased with it, is that we actually have the ideas, and then other people spread them. Other bigger organizations uh, spread them, and actually very often get the credit and the grants and the money. And other people write the books, but it's still our ideas. And I don't think that we can do both. I don't think we can be an organization in the lead, sharp, and have debates like the kind that we're used to, you know, which are very controversial, the way we address things. You know, ruthlessly, and still kind of be popular. So I'm very pleased being the virus. You know, we basically fold the ideas, we plant the viruses in other organizations, Smart Growth America, you name it, the Urban Land Institute. You know, we don't need a magazine. Urban Land is our magazine. You know what I'm saying? And so uh, I think this idea of other people, other people taking credit and other people uh, using our terms and our technology is exactly the right thing to happen. Exactly. The new organism is interesting because every year we get, I don't know, three, four, five hundred new members, and every year we lose about three or four hundred. You know? They come in and they go. And as long as we keep getting the good ones and losing the ones that want simple things, the ones who just want simple ideas and nice thinking and good stuff, we don't want them anyway. You know? And so long as we maintain a kind of a kind of quality that they, they really like energetic people stay with us. And the ones who want to take it easy, we're fine. What, what frightens me sometimes is when we start getting, is when the first-rate people say, oh, the Congresses are getting, I'm not learning anything. So it's not worth the money to go. And that actually is a danger. I knew I was in for a long time when I was at a meeting once. It was in Montgomery, and we were doing a, a summit where we were reviewing you know, new urbanist developments and, and critiquing them. And Victor Dover was standing up there and going through his thing. And, and you stood up and said, stop it, everybody. Everybody here is being too nice. <laughs> we're not, we're not, we're not learning anything. If you guys are unafraid to say anything, you know, difficult about this, Let, come on, let's go. And the whole meeting changed and we started, uh, you know, rolling up our sleeves and, and yeah, I won't say being cruel to each other, but, you know, saying, all right, if, if we're going to be leaders, we got to be hardest on ourselves. Let's go. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Exactly. And, uh, and it's exhilarating. And by the way, this way of being, I remember when that's the way it was. This making nice business is also recent. Like if you were 60, something like I am, you would remember when people just said it like it was, you know, without people feeling getting hurt. It just was gradually softening the discourse. So that to me is a perfectly normal thing to say. You know, by the way, you can see this in the British Parliament when they have debates. They just say yeah. it like it is, you know? Right, and, right. You know, but now, we make nice in public and we, we have daggers in private, you know? <laughs> They're ruthless. And I say it's much better to have it out. For example, this Trump thing, you know, forget Trump indeed. But the fact that he had 40 million voters or something, these are very frustrated people that were unable to say what's on their mind. 
And so what Trump says is for them. You know, and I think that that is actually it, it, what I call the Trumpistas are actually the repressed people fighting having a voice. And it would never have gotten this crude if actually the public discourse could have been a little more open. You know, and I see it in Tourette's all the time. Like people make nice during the public process and they take me aside later and say, privately, let me tell you what I really think. You know, and I say, what is this, Cuba? Like, well, you know, why can't you say it in public? What's up with this? And I do think that actually is still freedom of speech. You know, being able to say what's on your mind is actually necessary. Actually, even if it's, even if it's hurt, if this idea of hurtful speech, of course it's hurt, of course it's hurt each other. But we hurt each other anyway, and it's, even when it's private, it's worse. Sometimes saying something stupid in public is a way to actually correct your stupidity. I'm, I'm guilty of that. If you only say it in private to people who don't think it's stupid, you're likely to continue to be ignorant and, uh, and the like. So yeah, I, yeah, I you totally agree. The choir. Oh, we sing beautifully together, but so what? Gotta have both. So anyway, it's always on the verge. It's a, it's a fluky organization because it's an open membership organization that still remains, nevertheless remains elite. When you think about it, why does an open membership organization remain elite? And I think it's because we are, we, we tell the truth a little too, too, too clearly. And, and people can't it anymore. And I think that's a wonderful thing. It's really, it's really the vaccine that we're going to be in the lead when we are able to actually say it the way it is. You know, when developers can tell us what it's really like to be a developer in this country without, without, uh, as a preamble that says, I'm only a developer and I apologize for that but. And I said, don't apologize. You're the people who are building things. Why do you have to apologize? And, you know, that's the kind of thing we should just be able to say what's on our mind. And yes, of course we remain a small organization, but we're, then we're an important organization and very rare one. Andres Duani, thank you for being, as always, so generous with your time. I really appreciate you uh, chatting. And gosh, I look forward to seeing you in Detroit. Yeah, great reunion. Thanks for doing this. Take care. And thanks, everybody, for listening. Keep doing what you can to build strong towns. Take care. We need your help. If you think the strong town's message is important, don't keep it to yourself. Pass it on. You can get more information and sign up to be a member of Strong Towns at strongtowns.org. Drastic times require what? Drastic measures, yes! Who said that? They know that America's one big pothole right now. Bill, 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 Bill. That's a story. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Oh, the City! I like you. I like your vision of the of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit, Agenda 21. Yeah.